Welcome to episode 129 of Destination Linux. This is a podcast of opinions made up of four of the greatest minds ever discussing our passion for Linux. I'm Ryan, and with me today are the pseudo ninjas of Linux, Noah, Michael, and Zeb. So, Michael, you're literally right next to me, so I guess it's fair to ask you first, how has your week been? Well, until I got here, it was fantastic. But now that I'm here, it's it's reasonably okay. <laughs> so I was going to the Linux user group for with Ryan's and tomorrow to just come in early and we could do the show while I'm here too. And uh, we we're gonna we hanging out for a little bit and it's it's awesome. It's kind of like mini self of two people, so not really a self, but uh, I I'm happy with myself of that joke. So. I, I, this is actually pretty fun. We also uh, decided to make sure that we were brand, or using each other's branding as well because that's that's how you do marketing. And uh, so uh, I, this is actually pretty fun, and I'm, I can't wait to go to the talk to the um, the, uh, the Linux user group tomorrow. That's going to be awesome too. And there's there's I'm I'm really happy to have a good camera for once. The also the like the being able to use the the the, the monitor that I was talking about last week is. Interesting. Like it is definitely nice. However, having to fix all the OBS stuff once I got here was not the best experience uh, because I have a not so nice camp monitor. So now that I have a uh, using this monitor, it makes it a lot more difficult to do it. But the curve is both fun and creepy at the same time. I do like it, and I, I, you have to get used to this. I think I would get used to it, but it would take a little bit, take a couple days or so. I talk about that in the video that the curved monitors at first it looks like warping and then in a day or two your eyes adjust to the point where you don't see it anymore and it's not really warping but there are just this there's this slight distortion almost that you feel when you first get it but then it goes away and now I can go from a flat monitor and look at that and it looks perfectly normal but the first time and it depends on your distance away too it is a little bit different but Michael I wanted to talk about the accommodations that I've made for you at my house Listen, I spent, I spared no expense making sure that you felt comfortable. Maybe tell people about uh, what your first experience was coming into the room that we set aside for you. Well, yeah, it was actually pretty interesting. I, uh, when I walked in, there was uh, a lot of branding for DOS Geek. <laughs> uh, that was impressive. As, as a marketer, I appreciate the effort put into that kind of thing. And uh, there was, not only is there, was there like signs of like logos and stuff. There was all they went to the point of making the the bed had sheets that were neon green and black to match <laughs> DOS Geek. Uh, there was uh, pillows that had that like DOS Geek. The, all the DOS, all the logos had this sitting on there. <laughs> and the uh, and it and it, they even go to the point of putting to put putting DOS Geek logos on the back of the, the back tank of the toilet. Like it was going through like just so much branding. I I respect the effort there. So uh, so I, out of out of respect, I had to also do the branding for the shirt. That's like that's the main thing. Is like if you're going to go that far, I you know I have to respect it. Well, that's awesome. I knew that you wanted to feel like you're at home, and I'm sure you have shrines and stuff built to Dust Geek. So I wanted you to feel like you're at home when of you course, came here. Of course, of course I did. Yeah. Naturally. So, Noah, what are you up to? We can't see you. What 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 have you been getting up to this week? Well, I have spent a lot of time working on LinuxDelta.com. You might remember from last week we talked about it's a distro review site that is allowing people to connect 
um, for their shared experiences. And we've gotten a lot of feedback. And so thank you very much to the Destination Linux family for your input and all of the suggestions that you've provided. We've actually taken all of those suggestions and we've have, I think all of the all of the suggestions that we've gotten both in the Destination Linux chat room as well as some people that have emailed in or sent messages on Telegram. Um, all of those have been uh, have been taken into account and we've made the appropriate changes and they have been pushed out as of about 54 minutes ago. So they are alive and ready to go. And so we've had a couple of people had some distros they wanted added. Some people wanted a couple of uh, features or thought things should be rewarded a little bit. Um, I know Ryan, as early as this morning, uh, gave me a suggestion that didn't quite make it into this feature push, but it will definitely make it into next week's. Um, so I just want to say a huge thank you to, you to those of you that have gone and written a review and shared your experience about a given distro or gone there to read uh, or mark some of them as helpful. All of those things help us build the community. And, and we're very, very, I'm very, very thankful that uh, Destination Linux has decided to become such a part of it and been able to help. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. And I have seen really good feedback from the community in the DL Telegram. If you're not a part of it, definitely join the Destination Linux Telegram. People are in there talking about all kinds of things from, you know, different suggestions on hardware, different tips and tricks for, you know, getting things working in different desktop environments, just a little bit of everything. And they're just randomly geeked out stuff. But this week, a lot of the topic has been Linux Delta. So I think that's been awesome. And Noah's been really quick in responding to, to everybody to capture their ideas. And that's always great to see. You know, I, I guess what makes me so excited or so thankful really is that, you know, you can put a lot of work into something. And if all that happened was people didn't crap on the idea, that as a content creator or as somebody that's pushing to, to create a product or a service, that makes you happy, right? Like not everybody crapped on my idea. And so I should be happy. But it, I cannot begin to tell you how, uh, how satisfying or, or, or how thankful the feeling is when you put months and months and months of hard work into something and you get people sending comments saying, I can't believe this site hasn't existed until now. This is exactly what we needed. It is so helpful. And I'm really thankful this resource exists. And people are not only willing to help you out as like a favor, hey, go write a review as a, as a favor to me or because we're asking, but they're genuinely thankful for the resource that's there. It lets us know that we're not wasting our time. And so I guess and all I can say is thank you. Mm -hmm. That's awesome to hear. And one last thing, I think it's really neat. You're on the road right now with a microphone and you're transmitting your audio in a unique way. Now you've done it before, but it's still cool as ever to hear it. So maybe a quick couple seconds of how you are getting your audio to us right now while you're traveling. Sure. Yeah. So we are using AES67 audio over IP. And um, essentially what it's doing is it's encoding my voice. And so, yeah, I'm sitting in the passenger seat of, of my uh, of my Suburban. My wife is driving and and we're sending audio back to Grand Forks where it's getting encoded and processed and everything is is uh, is made to sound as good as it possibly can over the tiny little internet connection I have. And then that is being sent uh, at full force back to the destination Linux HQ headquarters, uh, which actually interestingly enough is in Ryan's house this week. Um, and so what that allows us to do is to take a internet connection. That's barely a meg up and a meg down and deliver almost perfect, just under PCM audio, uh, a PC uncompressed PCM audio uh, back to the studio, which is, you know, it's really a clever thing. The only, pro the only problem is we weren't able to get video to work. So it's unfortunately I have to put up with a static picture of my mug, but that's okay because I'm often looking out in various directions anyway, other than right at the camera where I should be. No, that's awesome. I think that's so cool. And uh, Zeb, how has your week been? 
Uh, well, it's been really, really good. And um, I reinstalled Arch again. Why? Because I could. However, I will still stand by my thinking of I am better off using a pre-built Arch ISO because that's just who I am. I'm not one of these ones who enjoys that whole learning experience. But then having said that, I'm probably going to be doing one of the dumbest things I've ever decided to do in my whole computing life. And tomorrow I will be live streaming a Gentoo install. What? Wait, wait, what? What did you just say? <laughs> You're live streaming a Gentoo install. Correct. Yeah, I'm going to have Serge and Adrian join me um, on a chat and they are going to be steering the Titanic as I attempt to sink it um, in the waters because, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. So not only will I be able to say, by the way, I use Archentu. That <laughs> is unbelievable that Serge has finally convinced you to do this. Now, I've done Gentoo before and you just got done doing Arch. I guess good luck and um, I don't know. Godspeed. Mm -hmm. yeah. But let's get on to the most exciting part of my week. And this afternoon, I had the opportunity to meet with uh, the Pine Book community manager here in London, um, Lucas Erisinski. So it was this afternoon in London, and he showed me one of only five prototypes currently existence of the Pinebook Pro that's going to be coming out very, very soon. That is awesome. And what's even more awesome is he's allowed me to take it away with me. No, he did not. What? Look at that. So this is currently, as I say, one of five exclusive prototypes that exist in the world um, with the pine book. And you can see some of the, um, look how thin it is. I love it. Awesome. And, and yet one of the things that struck me when I first picked it up, zero flex when I'm holding it in the corner, um, for something that's so small and light, the hinge on the lid is very, very tight. I mean, I can hold it by that and the keyboard's not opening. It's just amazing. There's there's so little flex in this machine. Um, and I don't know if we'll have a bit of time later on in the show to talk about it, but I'm really, really excited. Um, it has to go back on Monday, and, and he wants some feedback on, on what I felt. But please understand, this is a prototype, and there will be lots of things changing between now and and when it finally ships to the to the customers, I believe sometime in August. Now, to get everybody caught up, the Pine Book is the hundred and ninety nine dollar version, right? Or that we mm -hmm. think that's about the price it's going to come out at. It's yep. got fantastic specs, and it's a laptop for a hundred and ninety nine dollars. Like this is insane. You've got in what size screen was that? There is that a fourteen inch? Uh, I think it is a fourteen inch. Yeah, and what's amazing is it's a full nineteen twenty, so it's full HD. That's incredible. Yeah, the, well, I can't wait to hear how much you like it. Yeah, the pine the pine book, the ninety nine dollar one is like the is like the entry level, like really cool one. I got that, and it's it's awesome. It's it's coming handy so many times, and I am so jealous that you got an access to play with the, pro, the prototype. That is awesome, and I and I can't wait to actually get because I'm totally going to get the pine book pro because there's no chance I'm not. So because I you know if the pine book itself if it's just a little bit better it would be a great secondary laptop to just take with you everywhere. And mm -hmm. the Pinebook Pro essentially 
looks like it's going to come to that, you know, that they get to the, the requirements that I want to be able to do that. So I can't wait to play with that. Yeah. And I think I'm right in saying that your pine book that you had was the plastic shell casing. Yeah. I had the original, pla- the white plastic one. This is a full metal body. Body. Yeah. That I'm so, so excited to try that. It looks, it looks awesome. And then we should talk about it for sure. Cause it's like the new stuff that they announced recently. Like this, I'm so excited about it. I, I, I am like kind of. I haven't even used the Pine Book Pro, and I'm already kind of a fanboy of it. <laughs> All right. Well, we will get more into that. And uh, thank you so much to Pine Book Group for getting us one of these two for Zeb to test out. That's just awesome that they allowed that. So, and you're one of five prototypes in existence. That means they really love us, Zeb. They must really, mm-hmm. really love us. Yeah, exactly. All right, Zeb. So we have an email from JD this week. What's he have to say? We certainly did. So he says, hello, DL crew. After listening to episode number 127, I thought you might like some more input from someone who for several years chose Mac OS, formerly OS X as their primary OS. That's Noah's favorite OS actually out there. So that's great. <laughs> so the appeal for me was, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to write into the show. Just sometimes I do. Sorry. <laughs> nice. That's, that's cool. So JD, Noah Chalaya. No, I don't think that was you somehow, Noah. Um, so JD it says that the appeal for me was professional software support, Alberton, various VSTs, Final Cut, etc., coupled with a Unix-like core and a proper terminal. Prior to buying a MacBook Pro in 2015, I'd been switching back and forth between Linux, primarily Zorin, oddly, and Windows 7 as the as as need be, which was tedious to say the least. So finally, it was it was great consolidating everything into a system into a single system, and with third party package managers like Homebrew, I didn't even miss Linux much. Though of course, I still had half a dozen or so Linux powered servers kicking around, as one does. Um, alas, all good things must come to an end. The end in this case being the death of my MacBook Pro screen and the increasingly high cost of a new panel, $600, cheap at half the price, um, it buys a lot of computer elsewhere. So in a handful of years since 2015, Linux has come quite a ways, and companies like Slimbook and System76 have put out some truly great hardware that run Linux nearly perfectly. My audio interface more or less just works nowadays, though Linux audio, especially for music production, is still a, a... a bit of a bind sometimes. Even if all my old plugins don't, I've moved into my hardware-based solutions anyway. Ultimately, I suspect that my screen not broken, I'd still have been using that MacBook Pro, despite my recurrent fits of cognitive dissonance, though I suspect that I wouldn't have bought another one when its more natural end came due to the previously mentioned fits. JD. So, it looks like because his MacBook broke, he made that decision to move to Linux. Um, and I think that was the, the right decision for him because no doubt um, $600, he probably bought three or four really good. Um, what are those? 
laptops that everybody raves about that really work well with Linux? Dell XPS or ThinkPad? X1 That's Carbon? the one, the ThinkPads, yes. yes. Let me ask you guys this, if I may. Is this, I mean, I'm the first one to celebrate a new Linux user, so welcome to the family, buddy. But at the same time, do we need to have an honest conversation with ourselves and say, if that's the case, are people choosing Linux because it's better or because it's cheaper? And if the answer is because it's cheaper, that's fine to get us started. But I think as we move forward, I think we've got to acknowledge that maybe there are some shortcomings and we need to address them because if you have somebody... Let's say they're making $300,000 a year, $400,000 a year. Let's say they have a net worth of $4.5 million, something like that. Is that person going to choose Linux because it's better? Are they going to say, listen, I can afford the $8,000 iMac and the $999 standard, whatever. And so, uh, yeah, that's, I'm fine with that. I don't care because I just want the best thing. I, I'm, not saying it's, I'm not saying that macOS is, is better than Linux by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm just asking the question. If the answer is I would have replaced my MacBook with, with the screen except for the cost of the panel was too expensive, um, is that something that we have to have an honest conversation about ourselves with? Well, he had an interesting PS section that Zeb didn't read here. It says, I think that many Mac OS users end up switching to other operating systems, not because of issues Mac with Mac OS, but due to Apple's increasingly insulting business practices in the mm. area of repair, pricing, and quality control. In case my rambling above didn't make that explicitly clear, rewriting emails is for cowards, people who have already eaten breakfast and better writers than me. And then he goes, PPS, I use Emacs, by the way. So I think that, you know, I, I think I started this little storm. And actually, if you go back and look at the YouTube video last week where I talked about playing with Mac OS and just being surprised that they, first of all, uh, forcibly made their hardware irrelevant. I think that's a pretty insulting business case when that, uh, or yeah, uh, insulting to their customers. And even Dark One, who's somebody who uh, is a patron of the show and has purchased Mac, old Mac equipment to put Linux on it and things has had similar issues where they basically take this old hardware that is perfectly viable still, perfectly powerful hardware and just purposefully end of life it. And people have to deal with that. Now for your people who are making good money, I think that we have to make a different case. I think certainly one of Linux's advantages is it's going to be cheaper, but you know, Noah, you know, we're in a situation where we could go out and buy the latest Mac books for as much as we spend on all of our audio equipment and uh, monitors and toys and all of that stuff. But we don't because Linux, in our case, we just feel is plain superior to Mac OS. It's not just an insulting thing. Right. Or, or availability you know, thing. I, I guess, I guess even if, I guess in the places where I don't think that Linux is superior to Mac OS, they're human limitations, right? It's because software companies have chosen not to make their software available on Linux. It's not that Linux itself is to blame for any of that. It's because of the ecosystem around it. The people that are responsible for developing software choose not to participate in the Linux ecosystem. So my rationale, how I answer that question myself anyway, because you're right, I have the spare cash. I can go out, I could replace every computer I own and then some. I can put two in this closet just to have spares. That to include their brand new $5,000 cheese grater, right? But the reason I don't is because I think, one, it's a waste of money. And the reason I have the money to spend on it is because I don't waste it on idiotic things like cheese graters for $5,000. But the second part is that I genuinely believe long term 
society and users are going to be in a better situation if they choose to stick with a free and open source platform because that's where I think the future is. And I think every metric we have tells us that's the direction we're skating to, to include the fact that large companies like Deutsche Bank are choosing to embrace free and open source software for their for and they don't have any allegiance right they have massive budgets and very little allegiance if any to any particular software platform they choose it because at the end of the day it's best i think it's really interesting though that you know we've, we've talked about marketing and i think we need to beat this drum some more because what i was trying to get across last week and there were passionate people that said just what you said Noah last week in the comment section saying but the software that's available for Apple and not available for Linux makes it you know superior in that type of thing which isn't a Linux issue they just choose not to write software for Linux it's not like it's not capable of running it obviously but it shocks me that this is the company that's almost like the social movement company the green company that people assign to apple right the college students and everything that's what they want that's what they want to move towards and it shows the lack of marketing in linux because what is more of a social movement right now than say closing the digital divide than making software available to everybody regardless of your income what is more social movement about Mac than that, which is what we have here on Linux. And yet people still associate when you think of Mac and Apple with that social movement uh, style issues where they literally do nothing. They're actually causing more garbage and all of these rare resources to be thrown into the garbage, even though they have a recycling plan. I know so many people who just throw their computers, like I said last time, in the trash and or, you know, um, leave them in a closet forever that go go to waste. Whereas this, this hardware is perfectly viable to still be continued to be used. College students could use it. Other people in other countries could use it. People here could use it. It's just, they're basically forcing people through their OS to migrate off. And I hate that our marketing is just so terrible in Linux that nobody thinks about it in that aspect. And that's a major thing that we have to overcome. Okay, so we want to hear from you, our listeners. Send in your favorite Linux software or tips and tricks. We'd love to know what tools make your Linux experience amazing. Is there perhaps a specific Linux topics that you would like us to try and cover? Send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. So this episode of Destination Linux is sponsored by our friends DigitalOcean. So DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and more. You can get all of this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That, my friends, is darn near free. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud agnostic tutorials, and I love them all, and I'm pretty sure I've used 1,999 of those to help you stay <laughs> up to date with the latest open source software, languages, and frameworks. Get started on DigitalOcean for one month free with a $50 credit by going to do.co slash DL. It's important you add that DL so you know that we sent the, you there. They know that you came from Destination Linux, so that's do. .co slash DL, and you can get that $50 credit there as well. And a huge thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode. 
What I also find really amazing about the DigitalOcean side of things is I smile every time somebody talks about it every every single week. Yeah, because you hear about people making offerings and they give you a per hour chance to use it, but nothing is as crazily low as seven cents per hour. You could have a project that you just need to do oh, just for one day. It's zero. Point seven cents, so it's seven tenths of one cent. So <laughs> that's even crazier. So, you know, you've got a project that you need to do for one day. It's not going to cost you fifty or sixty dollars to rent a server. You're going to get it done for a crazy amount. So, whether you need it for for a long time or just one specific project, DigitalOcean have got that offering for you. I just I have to smile every time that's said every week because you never see offerings that low in the business world. Everybody thinks, mm, they only want it for a couple of hours. We'll charge them four ninety nine. Yep, Thanks. love them. All right, Michael, so what do we have in the news this week? So first up this week is Magia 7 has released. They've been developing this for quite a while. There's a lot of, a lot of new stuff and new features in this particular version. And if you're not aware, Magia is a fork of the old Mandriva Linux. So there's Open Mandriva and there's also Magia that came from the same thing. That also comes to go back to even the Mandrake days as well. So this was created by former employees of Mandriva.sa. And they both they have all, all kinds of different DE options. They come with a Plasma, of course, uh, the GNOME option, XFCE. Uh, and there's also some other ones as well if you want to try, try them out. And Magia has a wiki and documents that provide new users plenty of options and info and support. And they also have which is rare, an accessibility section info for screen readers and options, and, and most of it, like they, they still have a little bit of stuff that needs to be like work in progress, but there's a lot of distros that don't have anything at all, so it's really cool that they have that. And one of the things I like about Magia is they also have like a separate repo, kind of like Fedora, where they have, uh, it's called the Cauldron repo, where they, you can do uh, beta testing and get up-to-dates. Like, it's kind of like having a stable base, but getting rolling updates through Cauldron. So that's a pretty cool feature as well. Uh, there's also a lot of new stuff that's coming with version 7. They've added some more window managers and, and additional DE. They've uh, improved some support for Wayland and the hybrid graphics support, which is the hybrid graphics are one of, is one of the difficult things that people you know always want to have, and they, and they have to deal with doing Optimus and all that stuff. Uh, they've updated their kernel to 5.1.14, Mesa to 19.1, 9 and they've got the uh, version of 5.15.4 for Plasma, which is not the latest version, but it's pretty close to the latest version. Uh, you can probably update that version with Cauldron 2. Uh, and they've also got the update for the beta version of XFCE, which is really cool of the 14 4.14 pre, uh, pre-beta option. And, and they've also done some improvements to... Uh, their ARM support, which is really nice to see, because a lot of distributions that don't support ARM, and uh, it's really ARM is becoming more and more important these days, especially with something like the Pinebook Pro coming out. So when we talk about distros and you know whether they're unique enough that there really should be a separate distro altogether, this one actually looks unique enough to me to to qualify for our program basically saying that they're doing something completely different here but what would be some use cases for utilizing this say over a fedora or over a, a another distro 
like an Ubuntu or an Arch or something along those lines? Is there, besides being based on Magia or Mandriva, is there anything specific about this that makes it unique in your mind? Well, there's, I mean, the interesting thing about these types of distributions is that there's a lot of collaboration that's gone into it. So you could say, like, what is the big difference between, uh, like I said, that Fedora, it has the uh, Rawhide repo and Magia, Magia has the Cauldron repo, which is, they're very similar. And also, I'm fairly sure that they have switched to DNF packaging in Magia uh, away from the URPMI that they were using. And Fedora also uses DNF. So really, what is the difference between the two? And I would say that they there's really no reason to use one over the other. And that's kind of the interesting thing about distributions, because some of them are like or the quality of them are high enough that they are kind of competing at the same level. So you could kind of do either one. But I think that um, that one of the reasons I would say that Magia is great is because they're they're they're. Uh, developers and their maintainers are one of the like the easiest to deal with nicest people to uh, I've dealt with as far as developing software and like Fedora is also there are also a lot of great people in Fedora as well but sometimes when I would send something to Fedora or to Debian Debian is probably one of the most annoying as far as doing this when you send an email or you send a request to get them to update something there uh, I would go to Debian for example and then they would send back a message in my email is like, well, your syntax of your email is not good enough. So we had to fix that. Once I fixed that, then there's like a week, maybe two weeks and I get a response. Uh, Magia, I went to go to check to update the software for my, the application I was working on. And I went to their repo and I didn't have to ask them to do anything. It was already fixed. It was already updated. So like they update and that was not even in Cauldron. That was in the regular repos. So like they update stuff really quickly and they're very proactive in that sense. But as far as like what you can do as a user between Magia and Fedora, they're kind of similar in the sense like there's not much that you could argue that is you know superior in many in any way. There's they're so they're so good. Both of them are so good that you kind of it's really hard to say which one is better in the sense. And I would say there's not any. There's a lot of distros that are like that. Like OpenSUSE, you can argue is also at that level that is you know it's it's more of a preference rather than it's like the distro itself is over is better in general. So uh, Noah or Zeb have either of you worked with this? I actually installed it. I really dug it. And that reason you gave Michael saying, Hey, they, you know, really listen to their community. I could actually see that because their forums were quite packed and they had a, it looked like it, a lot of people who were utilizing it were regulars, meaning they have a nice tight knit community there, but Zeb or Noah, either of you used this before? I have not. I don't know about Zeb. Well, you know me. I, I distro hop uh, crazily throughout the year. So, yes, I've revisited Magia um, from time to time over the years. It's not something that's always sort of struck me as, wow, this is fantastic. I've got to use this. It's always been one of those distributions that has, and it's horrible to say, but it just works. It's boring. There's nothing exciting about it, and every time I go, to, I go to look at it. I, I, I get the I get the software there, and I install it, and I think, "Yeah, this is great," but I'm not feeling the magic. I'm just not. It just there's something about it that doesn't click. So I think I'll wait for the next one, and the next one comes along, and I'll issue, and I'll go out and I'll try the release candidates, and I'll try the betas, and for release candidates and betas, 
there's obviously an awful lot of work that have gone into this distribution before they send it out to the public. So although it's a beta, comes onto my machine, it's rock solid and it works. And it's the same as Magia 7. It's rock solid and it works. It, But it's just not for me. But I can understand its appeal because they're not on the bleeding edge of everything. They make sure um, that what you've got works and continues to work through the life cycles of the of the product so if you want stability then yeah get yourself onto a magia installation get used to it because you will just roll on from distro to distro and everything will work for you right and i'd also like to point out that you said that you you hate to say that it just works but there's a lot of people who would prefer their system to just work so maybe you might not want to, you want to have something that a little extra, get some flair to it or whatever, but there is a lot of people who just like, I just want to install it and I just want to use it and that's it. Mm-hmm. And I think Magia is a good option for that as well. And I do like that. I was, I've, I've, I've mentioned the cauldron multiple times, but I do really like the fact that Magia puts a lot of effort into making it super stable for the, like their, their regular repos and the regular staple mm-hmm. repos. But also the cauldron allows you to get up to date stuff if you want it to. And for the most part, I like the only time I ever had an issue with cauldron was when I was doing ridiculous things like trying to replace my kernel with the newest kernel in the thing. And it would just, just got into the cauldron and it was like, and that was just ridiculous on my part. But if, if you're updating an application, most of the time I never, I never had any problems with applications in general doing that. So even then, even the beta section, they still do a solid effort and work on their beta section. So I do think Magia is a really good thing. Uh, it might not be in the sense of like flashy, but it is a solid distro. So another distribution that I've been looking at over the years, but on this one, I've never actually got to install it, and I'll explain why later. Nutix 11.1 has been released. Now, Nutix is a distribution built from Linux from scratch, and there is the reason why I've never actually gone to use it for. And it's from beyond Linux from scratch, and it has a new release, 11.1. This latest version comes with over 1,000 package updates and the latest kernel 5.1.15 for the 64-bit version. The biggest changes outside bug fixes and updated packages include that some new ISOs are available, Nutrix rolling, and then Nutrix fixed version, which comes with everything needed requiring no internet connection. You also have 32-bit options for ISOs as well. Finally, Cards, or C-A-R-D-S, is now available to track obsolete packages and deletes them from deletes them automatically from your local installation. There is no accessibility document that we could find for Nutix. However, this distro can be installed over the top of us other distros via a script if anyone wanted to try it. Now, going back to the fact that it's built from Linux from scratch, it's I think it's the ultimate test of your Linux ability. So if I'm honest, I wouldn't even know where to start with something like this. So I'm hoping one of you guys has perhaps had a look at it, even if it's only in a VM. Well, it's built from Linux from scratch, but it's not Linux from scratch, meaning it's not hard to install. It's not like doing the full, it's not easy to install, but it's not like doing the full Linux from scratch experience, which I think, on this show, the only one I'm aware of that actually has done that is Michael. I've not even tried that yet, although it is on my list to probably. I don't recommend it on. Yeah, I, I still got to probably do it just to say I've done it. But I do like, I do like distros that are not based. 
I like seeing more distros that are not just based on Debian or an Ubuntu because there's so many of those that it's almost at the point where it gets boring. Like, okay, yay, another Ubuntu-based distro. Yay, another Debian-based distro. I mean, they're fine. And some of them, we've gotten some amazing products out of that, but I just don't want to see a bunch more because we already have too many. In my opinion, there probably needs to be some consolidation there. So I was, I'm pretty excited to see another rolling or distro out there. And Nutix offering a rolling option for me is awesome because one of the things we don't see a lot of is rolling distros. You've got a couple, a handful of rolling distros out there. And I did a video recently on an OpenSUSE Tumbleweed, not versus Arch, but an Arch comparison that was community requested and the video exploded. And there is just so many people looking for rolling distros because so many people coming into Linux have the latest and greatest hardware. They're not running the laptop that's 15 years old anymore. They're bringing in the latest stuff. So I love that Nutix has this rolling edition here and I'm definitely eager to at least give it a try within a VM to check it out just because it's another one out there that like a Solus that I can go out and recommend for people to try. But the thing that holds me back is the script install portion of it for that they have here. Um, and it didn't look like there was an ISO that necessarily you could just go download and have a graphical installer. It looked like there's some type of script work or things behind it. So I'm not sure if Michael, you've tried this before and have any insight on it, but I'm going to have to play with it more to kind of figure out how this whole thing comes together. Yeah, it's, it's I have tried it. It's been a while since I tried it. So I, I don't know if 11, I'm pretty sure 11 does have ISOs and I don't, I don't, I don't know if the latest one does or whatever, but I have used the previous, I think it was new ticks in 10 or nine that I tried. Uh, I think it was 10 actually. And they have, um, they had ISOs at the time, so I think they don't require the script, but they just make it possible so you could use the script if you wanted to. Um, and I don't, I don't know why you'd want to start from one distro to go to another one, but it's an interesting, you know, idea to do it. Do you, mm -hmm. So it's, it's a lot quicker to do that since you already have some of the packages there. But that requires a lot of integration to be able to do that anyway. But uh, th I think that the interesting thing about Nutix is the way it's structured because yeah, they they have they have a rolling option. But the rolling option is not the fastest pace thing. I mean, it's not even, it doesn't have a ton of packages. It's not really meant for the, it's not meant to be a competitor against Arch, for example. Like Arch has thousands and thousands and thousands of packages and is rolling all the time. And Nutix is more of a, a, a slow roll. It still rolls, but it's not the fastest thing. Uh, and it also doesn't have a ton of, it doesn't have as many packages and that kind of thing. So it is more of a enthusiast distribution and it's it's someone who wants to learn as much as they can uh, about about Linux and about operating systems in general, but want to start in a more you know easy, gradual pace rather than going through the process of doing Linux from scratch. So it's kind of like if you have already done Arch and you would like to use you know go even deeper, and you think that you know Gentoo is not as deep enough as you want to go, then you can go to Linux from scratch and start with Nutix to do that because Linux from scratch is a difficult thing to do. So like there's the best example of that about that is, um, you know, people say that installing Arch for the first time takes hours. And that's true. It takes hours for the first time because you have to learn a lot. And even if you have a guide, it could still take a couple hours to do it. And Gentoo is like a day 
and maybe longer depending on how long if you have any help like if you have help with someone who's a really enthusiast in Gentoo, they could get you right up and running in a couple hours or a few hours or so because the compile time can be bypassed by some things like for example browsers have binaries in Gentoo because people think that Gentoo is 100% uh source based and it's not 100% there's mostly but not 100% because there's some things that are just ridiculous like a browser because you have one browser takes three hours by itself so there's things that you can bypass there. But if you go into the process of Linux from scratch, that's going to take a week. Because the the, the the best thing to point out about is Linux from scratch is it's not a distro. It is just a book. And you learn every aspect of building a, a, a system through that book. So it's not even close to say that it's, a, you know, it's, it's basically the most hardcore you can is going through Linux from scratch. And Nutix so gives you an, an easier I, way. I would to add to that, Michael. I would add to that, Michael, that it, that the difference between Linux from scratch and uh, Gentoo, for example, I think Linux from scratch is really designed um, to be more of a teaching tool or something like that. Whereas Gentoo, there are people that are using it inside of data centers and Google is using it. And obviously Chrome OS is based off of it and, and those kinds of things. I think they're not to say that nobody ever uses something like never builds a, a distro from scratch for the purpose of, of commercial enterprise. But I think that the vast majority of people that I've run into, those that advocate from things like Linux from scratch, really designed more to teach you about Linux and not so much about actually using it in production, whereas Gentoo is absolutely designed to be a production distro. I think that's a great point. I mean, yes, Gentoo is definitely usable in the sense, like, it takes a long, a long time to set it up for the first time. But once you get that done and once you get used to doing it, you can streamline it much faster. Uh, whereas uh, Linux from scratch will always take a very long time, even once you get used to it, because of how much effort is being is involved in doing it. Uh, and I do think that it's 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 definitely the the best way to learn how the system works and how all that stuff. Uh, but you can learn. You I, I wouldn't say anybody who wants to learn that stuff probably shouldn't start with Linux from scratch anyway. Uh, so Nutix is uh, an option that could allow you to get started with how the structure works. And there are some things that are in Nutix that are custom to Nutix, like the card system. Or not, it's nothing to do with Linux from scratch, but there's a lot. It's, it's it's a nice way of giving a gradual structure. So I think that if someone wanted to learn, you know, like the the fundamental structure of how the operating system works and how the kernel, all the stuff goes together, I would say start with another distribution. Start with Arch, then go to Gentoo, then maybe go to Linux from scratch. I mean, that's what I did, and I think that if you went straight from Linux from scratch, it would be a a massive mountain to climb. And I think it'd be better to just go through the process of, you know, gradually getting to that point because it is the, it's going to be the most difficult thing to do. Uh, but it is it is worth doing once just to say you did and then never do it again. So, Zeb, it looks like you're doing Gen 2 on a live stream this week and next you'll do Linux from scratch on a live stream. Right, and right. we cannot wait for that to begin. It's be fantastic. <laughs> All right, so Google's Summer of Code has kicked off, and there are always some great projects that come from these events. One project that's being worked on by Farid B is a KDE ISO image writer for Windows to help with KDE Neon installs. So Farid will be using a tool called Craft, which is a cross-platform build system, so he can capture all the dependencies that are required to make this happen. And the idea is to take the KDE image writer that's available now for Linux and port it to Windows so that users who are on Windows now have an easier and reliable tool to make bootable Linux ISOs so that they can quit being filthy dual booters and come to Linux full time. So one of the advantages of being a QT 
Qt based application is the ability for them to be cross-platform. So that is one of the things that Michael will talk about uh, all the time, literally talk your ear off about of the advantages. And uh, so this makes it a very great summer project to port over. And the reality is a lot of these ISO writers from the time I started four years ago to now, I had moved different to different ISO writers because the reliability seems to always be going in and out. Meaning even like Etcher, where Etcher to me was I had finally found the greatest ISO writer that always worked and then it got bought out or something and an ad started appearing and it turned to absolute junk. So I'm very happy to see that um, KDE is working on an image writer that will work both on the Linux side and then when they get into Linux and they want to distro hop or whatever, maybe make an image for their other computer, they can do that with a familiar tool that will work across all platforms. Yeah, I think that this is fantastic because like I, one, the Google Summer of Code is basically the only thing that Google does good where they actually help people make code. And uh, this is a great project to do this because the, the KDE image writer is a clean style writer that that just gets the job done and it doesn't do like a lot of extra fluff. Like it doesn't have Electron, for example, like Etcher. Uh, and I think Etcher, like it was an interesting situation. Like you said, they were bought out by the Bellina company or something. And it went from being like something that was always reliable to the last three time, three or four times I've tried it. I, it just failed and I gave up. And then I go and get the KDE writer or another writer because there's other writers that do it well too. Uh, but they don't work on Windows, and I don't need to have those. But it's great that you know making it options for Windows users, so they can quickly you know find a solution to easily get into it. Because right now, I think the only reliable option for Windows is Rufus, and Rufus is actually kind of complicated because it doesn't it doesn't really tell you like what you need to do. It asks you a bunch of questions that you might not understand. And the KDE Image Writer is more streamlined in in that structure. So uh, I think that this is awesome that they're doing it, and uh, I think that this is and especially because it's cute based. I'll be the I'll be the voice of dissent. Uh, what's wrong with Rufus? We've got all these guides that are out there that are referencing Rufus. We have everybody that's out there that is on the Windows world that's coming over. All of the support groups and stuff they're all based around Rufus. Do we need another ISO writer on Windows? I mean, we've got Etcher, which is cross-platform already, um, but I feel like if you want to write an ISO file on Windows, Rufus is kind of the gold standard. Is there a reason that we got to replace it? Well, I mean, there, I mean, is there a reason? No. In this, other than the fact that it's kind of complicated because people, yes, there's tutorials of how to do it, but it's not straightforward when you first start using Rufus. I've actually mm -hmm. talked about people, two people on forums and in chat rooms when they're asking me what what to use. And when, when as soon as Etcher started becoming a headache, I stopped talking about Etcher and I started mentioning Rufus because it was basically the only option. And I'd have multiple questions of people asking me, what does this mean? How do What, what kind of partitioning thing are they talking about? What is this file system thing they're asking me? Like there's there's issues in Rufus that it's it's not necessarily meant for people who are brand new to doing this, and even with tutorials, they're still going to have questions because not all tutorials are going to cover everything, and even when they do, it's still a complicated topic anyway. So it's kind of an issue of if we have something that's just simple to use, that's a better approach, and that's what Etcher was until it started being weird and started having he like he headaches and weird failures, you know, randomly. So. I like the fact that Etcher was a simple process where it was just like a one, two, three. And now Rufus adds like 15 more processes. So I do think that there is a absolutely a position where an image writer or an ISO writer is, you know, set that windows would have that as a better streamlined approach. Cause Linux has multiple image writers that are streamlined approaches. 
They're just not available on Windows. So you can't really suggest it to people who are trying to switch. Like, for example, uh, OpenSUSE makes their own image writer. It's a very, very simple approach. It's a quick, streamlined approach. Same thing with Mint's image writer. They, there's multiple examples of this that are simple, but none of those work on Windows. And the only option right now is Rufus. And I think having a streamlined approach is definitely a benefit. Yeah, let me add into there, Noah. So I'm looking at a screenshot of the latest Rufus on Rufus's website because I don't have Windows machine, so I haven't actually used this tool in quite a long time. Uh, but it asks for the device, then the boot selection, then the partition scheme, then the target system, then the volume label, then the file system, and then the cluster size. How many people do you know that are Windows users full-time right now that know what any of that stuff means? But those are those are very um, none. But I know I, I also don't know any Windows users that would be able to figure any of those out on any platform. I think they all are going. I think they're all going to uh, follow some sort of a guide. And so I, I agree that I'm not saying Rufus is a great piece of software. I mean, Lord knows anything that doesn't run on anything other than Windows can't be classified as a good piece of software. But at the same time. I just I worry that there is a I, I worry that it, in Linux, we seem to spend a lot of time reinventing the wheel. And I'm a little concerned that what we really need to start doing is work on improving stuff where it needs to be improved instead of instead of giving people more choice. And I, and I get that that's a, a really Debbie Downer thing to say, but it, that's just kind of my that's kind of my guttural reaction to it when I hear, oh, we're porting this piece of KDE software over to Windows, it's like, well, that's great. Let's maybe spend more time worrying about getting Windows software to run on Linux and less time worrying about a, a thing that doesn't even seem to be a problem. Like anybody that wants to burn an ISO on Windows can do that. Let's not worry about that. Like I said, I'm, I'm fully willing to admit that's a Debbie Downer thing to say. Well, I think that you're, you're, you make a good point in the sense that there's a lot of times where these applications are not necessary and that we're kind of fragmenting a space. But I do think that this particular space is not fragmented on Windows. There's a ton of options on Linux. And a lot of people will just suggest DD. I don't think that's really a good suggestion, but there's a lot of options mm. as well as on top of yeah. those that even use DD. For like, for example, SUSE Image Writer uses DD to do the complicate to do the structure, but it just gives you a click for select the select the image you want to post, uh, or burn to it, then select the drive you want to put it in, then click OK and you and it goes. And that is the approach that Etcher provided to Windows users. It was just select the ISO, select the drive, go. And that is not what Rufus does. And even if there's a guide, they go into it and go, oh, I have to, I have to figure out what all this means. This is so complicated. I'm not going to use Linux. It's too complicated. Like mm -hmm. even just getting the thing to download to set up to the drive is so complicated. Why would I even bother trying to use Linux? And I think that's what the most people were going to go to of saying that just to even get to the chance to try it, I have to go through this huge loops and try to go to a guide. I have to go to YouTube and try to figure out how all the, what all these things mean versus mm -hmm. KDE Image Writer, which is so much simpler. And I'm pretty sure is in the same vein as SUSE, just doing like the, the, the one, two, go. And yeah. I think that is a much better approach and is very beneficial to Windows users. Like, I think all that Rufus need to do is just change their front end because as as a as a basic user, all you need to do is download it, run it, click on select, pick your ISO, and click burn. You don't have to mess with any of the other options because they are there and they work. I think the mistake they've made is they've left all of those available for people who want to tinker and get the ultimate copy of their distribution 
for whatever reason. But if you simply download it, and you can even download a version that's portable. You don't have to install it on your machine. So download it, click it, pick the ISO, click start. And it's literally one of those things where you can go, okay, 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 okay. And at the end of it comes out a working um, ISO. So yeah, simplify the front end. And if they had advanced and all of those options appeared, I think you would have that that simple interface that makes um, Etcher so easy to use. That is a good point. And I think that there's actually an issue of like the question of why are we doing this extra effort? I, I've seen people on the forums talking to Rufus and Roofing's team and asking them to do stuff like that, and they just don't think that it's necessary to do. And that create because they're not really even doing it for the purpose of what we want to use it for. Uh, they they make it possible to burn Windows stuff with it too, and like it's not necessarily specifically for getting to Linux. And I think that that's why they have all these different options because they allow you to do all these different things that they're like maybe the other things might need. Uh, so I think that this is a an issue of if Rufus were to create to do exactly what you're saying, doing a simplified version, there wouldn't be a need for another version or another option. But at the mm-hmm. moment, because they don't have that simplified option, it it will confuse people. Even if they don't need to change anything, they'll just be confused by what any of it means and mm-hmm. maybe be deterred for even trying Linux if we promote it. So Hunix 15 has been released. Hunix is an OS focused on security and privacy using the Tor network and a heavily configured Debian base. The Tor network is used for the desktop side security and not just for browsing in Hunix. So version 15 comes with the following updates. It's a port to Debian Buster, more kernel hardening, blacklisting of uncommon network protocols, system D unit sandboxing, updated software and packages, usability, and bug fixes. Hunix is a great tool to have for when privacy and security are of the utmost importance for you. This latest release and the roadmap for Hunix 16 are available now for you to go check out. Now, one of the things we're trying to do is add accessibility information into every distro here. Hunix, I could not find any accessibility information for this other than they had one section that talked about how to turn on an on-screen keyboard. Um, so definitely, though, I noticed on their site that they were asking for help in the documentation section. So if that's something that you could help out with, then definitely you may want to go check it out. But Hunix is really neat because of the fact that it is a using the Tor network, not just from a browser standpoint, which any distro can do, but for your whole entire distro. So anything that's reaching out, calling to the network from your PC is going to go through Tor and provide some, um, you know, anonymous screening for it. But of course, they even talk about in their documentation that just because it runs on Tor network, there are things like middleman attacks, uh, et cetera, that you could still face issues with. So it's not completely, doesn't mean you could go do something illegal and expect to get away with it and you'll never get caught but it is meant to keep companies from being able to basically easily get your information, spy on you, that type of stuff. It's kind of like a alternative to tails sort of, and it's not really exactly the same because it's not the amnesic thing, but it is kind of, it is similar in the print sense of like the focus is heavy focus of security and privacy. And I think Mm -hmm. that uh, Hunix has a lot of, uh, a lot of potential for people who are, you know, if if they have the high importance of privacy and security, I think Hunix is a decent option for that. 
there's a there's a lot mm-hmm. of benefits to it. And I do like the fact that they have Tor built into the whole thing and they have the sandboxing with system D and all that other stuff. It is definitely really cool. And they also do the extra hardening from the kernel. That is uh, you know, a lot of stuff that you would like a lot of people want to do for their stuff anyway, but don't know how to do, and they do it all for you. And that might be worth checking out if you're in that kind of that you're into the, the privacy and security to that level. Mm-hmm. And one of the other um, sort of a side of it, maybe that they haven't really realized from from a security point of view, is they're on version 15 already, which means there's been 14 before them. Well, it's obviously going to be that secure that the NSA don't know about it, because until release 15 was mentioned here, I'd never heard of Hoonix. So this is something that I'm going to have to go and have a have a look at um, and, and see if I can use it as one of my security features. So. Let's not try and advertise it too much for them because I think one of their extra securities <laughs> is no one knows about this thing. Well, uh, unless I'm the only one out of the four who's never heard of it before. Well, I, I'm not sure, everybody. I've, I've, I've never actually fully used it, but I have checked it out a couple of times in a VM just to see how they have structured it. I agree that there's, like, there are some benefits to having uh, unknown things as in people might not be paying attention to it if you're security focused. However, uh, thankfully, they don't agree that security through obscurity uh, that concept because they put a lot of effort into the security features. So I think it, it might be okay anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so Hunix is one of entails were two of the distros that were recommended to me that eventually led me into Linux, because when I was talking about privacy and security way before I did 30 days of Linux on the YouTube channel, way before I'd ever found Linux, that was what people were coming into comments saying, Hey, check these things out. And that led me down the line. So I will forever have a soft spot in my heart for these two projects. Yeah, definitely. So we got an update on the raspberry Pi four, and this is a really cool update. There's a, it appears that there's a firmware fix for the, uh, and now that's now available for that reduces the heat issues and maintains the same speeds that they were having so this is a lot of, like we talked about this last week about how there was uh, an issue with the Raspberry Pi, that Zebic experience where it got really hot. And then we also talked, like we went on like later when China reviewed it and there's a lot of reports of this issue that there is a lot of heat issues that they were having. And it's great that they have now fixed this because uh, there, there's one of the biggest issues that people had is like, if it's going to overheat to that point, it can't be the project for kids that it was meant to be originally. And that is a great point. And they fixed this. So this is awesome that they're doing it. And on top of that, they're also doing some upgrade. Up, 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 like we're getting some more up-to-date up news about what you can put on the Pi because uh, Raspbian is not really the best experience for the Pi. It's the standard thing that they come with, but it, it's not really the best experience. But thankfully, uh, Martin Wimpress, uh, the, who's a friend of the show. and He's not supposed to be mentioned on this show. <laughs> I'm sorry. I apologize. I will, I'll, I'll edit it in post. I won't do that. And uh, anyway, so we talked about that. And then we got some Ubuntu Mate support now for the Raspberry Pi 4, which is fantastic, uh, especially because like one of the things I've seen in the past that people had with a Pi uh, when they had used Ubuntu Mate is like they, they, they thought that the one gig about a RAM is not enough. And uh, it's still... Uh, it still worked well with Ubuntu Mate, but I agree that the having options for more for like four gigs of RAM m- makes this a very viable option of being combined with Ubuntu Mate, four gigs of RAM, the Pi, and having uh, the HDMI and the three USB three and the gigabit. I am now even more excited than I previously was, uh, you know, especially because they fixed the heat issues. 
is there another distro, Michael, that you recommend? Other like, so let's put a Bunte Mate on on the table for a second. You know, it's it's frustrating to me that the distro that they choose to ship with the Raspberry Pi is is not a particularly great distro for anything really. It's not particularly great for embedded systems. Not particularly great to get people introduced into computing. It's not particularly great for people to learn about Linux. It's not particularly great for development. Like there's there's really nothing that you notice. Nobody uses Raspbian for anything else other than uh, to install on on a Pi. Uh, you know, it, it's not. There's not a push to port it to x86. None of that. And, and I guess my question is, in what would you recommend for a desktop distribution to run on a Pi? I know I've searched for that myself, and the the Pi is kind of a weird hardware thing to begin with. But you know, what do you recommend for people? Arch, Arch, and uh, Arch. Um, but actually, I love Raspbian for its lightness. But you're correct. Outside of the Pi or other ARM devices, there's whole, not a whole lot of purpose to it. I think Ubuntu Mate, and, and if you think about the prior Raspberry Pis, that was a necessary necessary thing to have a very light distro. Although Ubuntu Mate did run on the three, um, there were at times where you would come across stuttering and different things like that because the three just didn't have the power. Now, Martin did an amazing job. Um, I hate to say it, but he did an amazing job actually, um, you know, do tweaking and making it run really well for the power that the three had. Now with the four, I can't wait to try Mate on it because I think that you're just going to get a much better all around experience, especially with the four uh, gigs of RAM that you have there uh, mm -hmm. to utilize. But honestly, yeah, you could do if you still wanted a lightweight distro to do some things on. You could do Arch. There's actually a lot of distros now that we've covered recently that talk about adding in ARM support for these style of devices. So you're starting to get to the point where it's kind of like whatever your favorite distro is on your desktop, there's probably a good chance if it's one of the, you know, um, bigger names that it has an ARM version. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. true. And I think that there's a lot of, that, that's a lot of benefits to using um, Ubuntu Mate with this newest version because of like, there, Mate is not meant. It originally was meant to be like a, a, a you know pred, a successor to GNOME two and continuing that process, but since then it's been modified to work with GTK three and all this other stuff to have support for high de high definition like you know four K monitors and stuff like that. So in order to do that, they had to kind of pivot a little bit against away from the whole like straight up lightweight as possible thing and adding features that is going to add a little bit of extra weight. And they've made the decision to do that because it's better for it to be continuing in the modern times than it to be just completely stuck in a lightweight structure. And the same thing happened with LXDE. They did. They went to LXQt. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because Raspbian is based on LXDE. And they so they have this really old uh, approach to uh, what they're offering by default because it's the lightest they could possibly get. And in some cases, I would agree that you know, the, the, the one gigabyte version might should come with that. Uh, but I, I think that the, the thing that I don't like about their implementation is because they created their own DE based on the LXDE system. It was, it's, they call it Pixel, I think. And really all it does is just kind of add some styling to it, some icon changes and that kind of thing. And it's not really that much of an improvement either. So I, I would say that what would I suggest as far as like going back to Noah's question? I, I would say that there's there's three options. One is actually going to be Arch. Arch Linux ARM is a separate uh, project from the Arch Linux group, and it's also known as Alarm, which is a fun acronym. 
But there's uh, there's also two others that I would suggest, and that is one is Ubuntu Mate. It works fantastic, uh, especially with a four gig one. Uh, like they, I, I would assume I already tried it myself, but it, uh, I have tried it like with a one gig, and it does work well. So I assume that the, it'll be fantastic with a four gig. But the uh, other option I would suggest is Fedora Arm, which is a very solid approach because I've used that on even really old versions of the Pi, even like to the back to the before the B plus came out with the first models Bs. Like it's it, Fedora Arm worked very well on that, so I think those options are probably the best for you. Uh, even though I don't, well, actually, if you want a desktop, I've, I previously the, the Pi wasn't really desktop ready, and if you want a desktop, Fedora Arm, uh, Ubuntu Mate, or the Arch Linux Arm option, uh, and I would say that those are great for the desktop option. But if you wanted something else, if you wanted a, like a media center, Libra Elec is absolutely the best option for that with the Kodi implementation uh, on top of a whole OS. But well, not whole OS. It's basically they, even their motto is just enough OS for Kodi. So if you want an application for a media center with the Pi, then LibreLec. And if you want some other thing, there's also a lot of other appliance-based distributions that are more specific to what they want. Because uh, you know, it, until now, the Pi was not really meant for a desktop. And I think now, once we have that, those three options are the best for it. Mm-hmm. You couldn't do a CLDR there, Michael. I did I, right at the end. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but it was an interesting part in this article here that um, I'm surprised we all skipped over because I'm sure that this is um, a reverse troll by Ryan on Martin because he's obviously had Martin read his book, Ultimate Dad Jokes. Because in here, Martin was tweeting that this should keep me occupied for a while. I mean, it's just brilliant. Well done, Martin. I love it. Fantastic. So up for discussion this week is free software under attack. A recent article was published by techrights.org discussing the threats that are out there against free software from corporate interests. The article is a summarized database of threats taken from a handbook for destroying free software movement. The whole article is worth a read and we will have it linked in the show notes. However, I thought we we could discuss some of the threats to get everyone's take on it. So the first threat mentioned is license circumvention, where companies move towards their own open source licensing structures that allow them to force unwitting users or companies into their agreements gaining control. So for me, licensing is a whole maze of confusion and unless you are unless you have that very analytical mind you know trying to work out the difference between gpl2 and gpl3 and i'm probably not even saying these words right because it's just something like a bit like the eula from last week where i'm supposed to say i use arch um I get to these licenses and I go, poof, do you know what? I don't want to read that. But I think this is going to become another discussion like security. If we don't, then we are going to lose our freedom. Am I overreacting from from having read this? 
I don't think so at all. I, I thought this article was interesting because there's everything is a conspiracy theory, like you were kind of saying, until it's not, right? It's a conspiracy theory. Oh my gosh, you know, all these people are exaggerating. Big companies don't want to hurt Linux. They love it now. And then all of a sudden, as we all slowly get cooked, maybe we should have paid more attention, but it's too late. So you never know. So I don't necessarily put all my weight behind everything said in here. But I also don't ignore it. It's something that I listen to. I file back. I, I think about, you know, how do we how do we tackle these style of issues so that we don't end up being just a you know toy for corporations to play with? Because uh, licensing has been a big concern, and there are a lot of companies, not a lot, but there have been a couple of companies who have reversed being free and open source and gone to different structures of licensing their software yeah. instead. Mm-hmm. And this can create issues um, because like what they're sta- stating here is companies move towards their own open source licensing. It has not gone through all of the lawsuits or, or protections and, you know, it just hasn't run the gauntlet to know if that license truly is uh, the same, offering some of the same options that we know the the core open source software license have done. And companies can use that to say, yeah, we're open source. Uh, yeah, we're using an open source license. And we just see the open source part and download the software and use it, which in fact, they could be using some, you know, thing they're calling open source, but that gives them complete control to do other things with the license later on. They also talk about in this article, development disruption, large companies taking over development platforms and controlling mass amounts of free and open source software. This was an interesting one. And I don't Mm. know if you have to have a tinfoil hat on for this, but they gave the examples of Microsoft and GitHub. The idea presented is to disrupt or break the free software movement enough to keep it from getting any real dominance. And And that is by large companies owning the development platforms themselves. And I was wondering, was this really um, talking about free software under attack or was this a an opportunity to have a poker Microsoft? Because although I don't use GitHub, I've never seen any stories of people who use GitHub saying that the development platform owned by Microsoft is stopping them from doing their work. So, well, to be fair, they just now recently, like a couple months ago, became the owners of GitHub. So like the amount of time that GitHub has been around, it's, it was not a Microsoft thing. So there really not hasn't sure. been enough time for them to implement anything that's you know awful. But I wouldn't put it past them in general because it's Microsoft. But at the same time, you know, Microsoft has changed and blah, 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 sure, whatever. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they claim that they have, but I, I, I still haven't seen it otherwise, other than the fact that they do things that appear, like the is free software under attack thing. Microsoft mm-hmm. is one of those companies that does things that are open source or open friendly, but are not really putting in their effort to saying like, we actually do care. We're going to prove it to you. We're mm-hmm. just going to do things that appear as if we care, but really benefits our bottom line. And therefore that's why we're doing it. And that's a, that's the, probably the fear of what a lot of these companies are like this, 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 uh, uh, you know, handbook is talking about in this article in the sense of like these companies are, pretending to care about open source, but they don't really care. They care about the fact that it has now become a marketing ploy to be a part of the openness and say that we are a part of the open, uh, uh, the open source community, open community, when they also use terms like open core, when it's not at all open. The core, mm-hmm. like the idea of open core is that we are partly open and then the rest of it's proprietary, like the way that sure. Redis did. Like you mentioned, Ryan, earlier about how 
the uh, like some companies are going for open source and then locking down some other things and saying, well, this part is not open source now. And that's what Redis did. They went from being completely mm. open source to saying, no, 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 these plugins that we're now doing, these are these are open core. So like the main part of it is still open, but this part is not. And there's a lot of companies sure. that are doing that. But I would say mm-hmm. that there are some arguments to say that there, you know, licensing is an issue because there are some projects that don't like the GPL for whatever reason, and they choose to use BSD and MIT. Now, one of those things is, you know, free, uh, BSD is a great example of something using a, a license that is, um, you know, like FreeBSD uses the BSD license naturally. But the FreeBSD, the BSD license is so open and it's, and it's not as it's like it's less restrictive than the GPL, which can be a good thing and can also be a bad thing. So, for example, there are things that take existing projects and relicense them and change the branding and do all these things and then create their own software. But really, they have their fundamental roots in that project that was originally open. And the biggest example of that is macOS because macOS was originally based on FreeBSD. Mm-hmm. So without the BSD license being as, as open as it is, they wouldn't have been able to use the FreeBSD platform to build their whole, their now macOS that is not even close to BSD in terms of use. You know, there's a lot of things like that. I guess I would say this. I, I, I am a little concerned, and here's why. So to Michael's point, these software companies, if they want to do something, first give something back that doesn't cause you to make any more money and doesn't benefit you, and then we will start to believe you when you say that you want to be part of the open source. Give something up first and then worry about taking in the reward. These companies are doing it backwards. They want the reward for being open, and they've not really demonstrated any real value in the open source world, and that's true for Microsoft as it is for Apple. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I wanted to talk about the attack vector here being Microsoft and GitHub because, you know, again, this is not a tinfoil hat moment. This isn't a beat up on Microsoft moment, but think about it from this perspective. If your biggest competition in the cloud, which is what Microsoft wants to be, is Linux, and now you love Linux, and then you buy the platform where everybody puts their open source software on, And now as you're building your other platforms to compete against it, you get to watch all of the code and the development cycles and every enhancement and change and update that's rolling into every single project that's a potential competition to your projects. It kind of creates an unfair advantage in a way, right? I mean, if you have your project on GitHub, there's some competition there to say, okay, well, we could pull that piece and put that in Azure to make Azure better. Ooh, that's good code. We can take that piece and put that in Azure because it's all open source, right? So there is some interesting attack advantages that this could give a company, not saying they would do that, having purchased GitHub. Um, They also talked about design attacks in this article, and I highly recommend everyone go out there and read it, even if you're like, no way, Microsoft and everybody's great. There's there's nothing to fear. At least put it in the back of your mind to see what things other people are cooking up as possible attacks on open source. But design attack is putting software into the hardware that is not open source and not easy to remove circumventing privacy and security. So what they're talking about here is all of this hardware that's been attacked recently that has software inside of it running other OSs and things like that, but it's in the hardware itself. So it's not like you can just get, you know, like with a laptop, you go and it has Windows and you're like, well, that's not very secure or private. I don't like that. I'll remove it. 
but that's hard to do with things that are written inside the hardware itself, where you can't go in there like the processor, for instance, and just wipe the uh, operating system that Intel has placed in that has now created so many attack vectors. Um, they also talked about, and I wanted to cover this one specifically, and there's many more, journalistic hostages. That's using the power and influence of large companies to pressure large journalistic platforms to drop negative articles, press, or opinions. And clearly, we don't have that problem on Destination Linux because we've been negative a lot lately. But it is interesting to think that, yeah, you know, a big company like Microsoft could come in, sponsor a big media outlet for Linux. And I guess let's use somebody else besides Microsoft this time. Um, What's another big company out there? Google comes in and basically sponsors a podcast or a media outlet and says, you know, hey, we don't want you running that article about privacy and security anymore. And they very well may not because in, in that podcast or media company is going to be under a lot of pressure to not run that article because Google's sending them big amounts of money. And that's the first time they've seen big about big stacks of money. And so it's going to be difficult not to run that. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of different vectors out there that open source could be attacked in. And I think sometimes we think, well, it's, it's been alive this long. There's no way they could possibly take it out. And maybe that's not so true. Maybe it's not taken out in one fail swoop. Maybe it's taken out little bit chipped away little by little over time, much like our privacy has been over the years. Mm -hmm. yep. One thing I found interesting about this is, um, I don't know about the other large journalistic platforms, but we will never be silenced. <laughs> That's very true. That is very true. There, there's no way they could do anything to, to us. And there's some of the issues that I think about this, like the journalistic hostage thing. That's an interesting point because I've seen some people talking about uh, changes that are happening with the Linux Foundation and that their Linux Foundation is promoting a lot of these companies. And I understand these companies are now becoming like board members and stuff like that. And I get why they would be promoting, you know, some aspects of these stuff. But there's a lot of stuff that I don't really fully, um, I don't, I, for example, the, the fact that Microsoft, I mean, I'm not going to bash on Microsoft completely. There's also things like Cisco and Oracle that are doing horrible things. And even Amazon is doing things that are against open source in some ways. Like, uh, like we'll just go through Amazon, for example. There's there's times where they were using these different pieces of software, and then they would fork it and then get more people to use their forked version because it's on AWS, and the and then the people would just skip the using the original one because then why would they bother when uh, Amazon's keeping up to date and all that stuff? So there's aspects there where the open source licensing does come into a factor of, you know, they, they can just fork it and pretend that they made it completely and never give anything back to the original development, uh, depending on what license it is, which gives power back to a, another argument of giving power back to the argument of GPL because the GPL does have a restriction that if you use anything GPL'd, you have to release it as GPL'd, whereas these other licenses like BSD and MIT don't require you to do that. And having that restriction, it, it does deter them from using the open source in some of these projects, but it also means that if someone does want to use those projects, they have to abide by the legit reason of open source and then is actually contributing to the community and contributing to the project that they're using. And that is another reason why I do like the GPL. So there's, there's different aspects to the openness and how some companies are doing it for marketing play, some things are doing it for getting code. I don't think that Microsoft necessarily got GitHub for that purpose because still the licensing applies. If someone is look, if they look at code in GitHub and they see it quickly, it doesn't really matter if that code is GPL'd because they can get sued 
and you know there's a lot of different companies like the e, the EFF will and the SFS FSF will also uh, you know go into the thing and like and also the software conservancy will stop companies and trying to use the GPL uh, against the the terms of the GPL. So there's a lot of effort there that we know that people have done it because the GPL has gone to the court multiple times. There's never every time it comes up, the companies will just kind of back out because we don't want a verdict to say that the GPL is, 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 is stable and solid. And so we're just going to drop the, the suit or drop using their software. So it still has gone to court, but never fully to the level of what we want it to be. Uh, but mm-hmm. I do think that it has, it has stood up enough where the GPL is a good, a, a good license that if, if you do make a project, uh, there's an argument to using that. Uh, but I think that, that Microsoft is not necessarily using GitHub for that part, that purpose yet but it's microsoft so they might and i I think that the the biggest issue here is that these companies who are essentially using open source as a marketing ploy or i like this phrase that i recently heard called open washing where they're just pretending to be open when they're really not and that's really what i feel that most of the issues are are for these companies because like used to you know 10 years ago people would never use open source as a way of marketing but now there are a lot of companies that are doing it. And mm-hmm. I think that that it, you know, is a sign of the times of the open source being, the movement of open source being like so important that they even see it as a marketing ploy. All of these companies, whether it's Microsoft, Oracle or not, like Oracle's open source projects are because they bought some other company that already made them open, like Java or, or VirtualBox. That's open because they bought Sun and who made VirtualBox. But that doesn't mean that Oracle really cares about it. They just happen to purchase the license or control of the software. So there's there's that aspect. But I think that, you know, any company that does something that actually wants to, oh, also specifically, they opened, they also bought OpenOffice and ruined it. So, you know, Oracle. Uh, but any, there, yeah. Yeah, any company that is doing the open source pushing or open marketing pushing, open washing, uh, I until you actually prove to me like I said, and like Noah mentioned about if you, until you prove to us, do you prove to our, to the community that you actually care by releasing something? And even in my opinion, it doesn't have to be open as long as you release it for the platform that is the most open, which is, you know, Linux and BSD. If you release software for Linux, specifically because I, I prefer Linux, but if you release software, even if it's proprietary for the, for the Linux platform, like Microsoft doing Microsoft Office, and actually allowing people to use your software that does not really benefit you on the platform for Linux, then that would prove to me that you actually care. Until you do that, all this whole open sourcing.net and putting SQL Server that just benefits you in Azure, I don't care. You're really not going to prove to me anything. And the fact that you want to get access to private mailing lists for, for being a Linux distro because you make the Azure sphere that no one uses or even know about most of the time, no, that doesn't count. Do something that actually shows you care, and then we'll talk about it. I mean, like, imagine if they ported Microsoft Office over to Linux. All of a sudden, if they open source Microsoft Office, all of a sudden we would care. <clears throat> if they wanted to open source, I don't know, what's another? Uh, they, uh, you know what? What's that uh, project management program that everybody uses on on Microsoft? The I, I've had people call into my program numerous times and say, "How do I? How do I do that? How do you do that on Linux? Why don't you open source that or open source Visio or y- any of those things that things that we don't have." compatible alternatives for on Linux. But you're right, Michael. Like, there's nobody out there developing software on Linux that's like, boy, you know what I wish? 
I wish I had Visual Studio. That's the thing I need. I wish I could write Visual Basic on Linux, and then my software development would be complete. Like, there's nobody mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, and just so that you understand that that product that you that project product that you couldn't remember is because it's MS Project. That is the name of it. That's 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 great. That's a very clever name. Very clever name. Good job. Mike. <laughs> they worked really hard on that one. No, I, I think that article is really interesting. I suggest people check it out because I think that, you know, there could be threats out there to open source and better that we all kind of start watching for that stuff now. And I agree more needs to be done and we need to be bending over less uh, backwards to help companies kind of swoop in and take the glory that of everybody's work to get Linux to this point. And that's what's happening. A lot of these companies are now swooping in last minute, like, oh, there's money to be made here and we can use people's code for free. And like I've said many times, somehow all of the big partners in Linux are like, sure, Microsoft, you want in? How can we help make it perfect for you? But, you know, one of the things that I absolutely love is gaming because, you know, gaming has a couple of competitors out there on the Linux side and it's getting better and better on Linux every single week, it seems. And so I wanted to talk about Humble Bundle in this case because we've talked a lot about Valve and Steam. But Humble Bundle, being that summer, is also offering a huge sale and you hopefully isn't over by the time this video reaches everyone, but it's 96% off and Humble Bundle is DRM free. So you don't have all the DRM junk in there when you buy your game from them. So definitely go out and check if one of the games you love is out there. And I picked a couple here that I noticed that are games that I've played that I think are awesome games that were part of this 96% off. And even if that sale's not going on, Humble Bundle has tons of great sales out there from time to time. So they are definitely worth checking out. But Shadowrun is a fantastic game. Owlboy, Chasm, Gang Beasts, Psychonauts, Brutal Legend, and Full Throttle. And yes, Zeb, there are even games in there that are not pixelated that mm -hmm. I chose just for you that you could uh, check out. But uh, we don't give a lot of press to Humble Bundle, probably not as much as we should. So I wanted to mention their summer sale as well that's going on. And you can give, of course, money to charities with Humble Bundle, which just makes it that much cooler. Absolutely. So going back to um, you saying we, that we always give Valve uh, a, a lot of airtime, um, maybe that's because they keep coming up with some really good things. Now, yeah. one of the things that, that Ryan is always talking about is people underappreciating the hard work that AMD perform for the open source GPU drivers. And thankfully, Valve has decided to pick up on that slack. Um, and in a very interesting article um, that talks about back in 2016, Steam started sponsoring open source driver engineers and the foundation for Valve open source graphics group. During this time, they've received a ton of community help and they want your help again. This is something that's going to give AMD graphics a big boost because they want AMD OpenGL and Vulkan drivers that use a shader compiler that is part of the upstream LLVM. And while this has worked, there are issues where LLVM devs are sometimes putting in updates that inadvertently create issues as their focus isn't with the compile time. So compile time is critical for, for gaming, however. So Valve has started work on ACO, which is a new Mesa shader compiler for AMD hardware. 
In testing, they show the compile times cut nearly in half. They also think they've only just scratched the surface of this new compiler. So what they want is your help testing, reporting bugs, and don't forget to say thanks. And it's also worth mentioning lots of really nice comments on the Steam posting thanking Valve. So Ryan will know much more about this than myself because I'm a Team Green and Ryan's a Team Red. But I know we have this little Team Green and Team Red rivalry, but he is right. It is good to see people... Because we know in the background, everybody's working within NVIDIA. They don't necessarily advertise it, but that's why NVIDIA works so well as it does. And yet all this hard work is going unnoticed. So it's great to see now AMD are getting some love and we need your help. They need your help reporting those bugs. So Ryan, how can they get stuck in there and help with this? Well, it's a very easy process to do. The first thing I want to say is, you know, being able to cut compile times and improve frame per second is a huge advantage, you know, in being able to do this in Linux. And nothing makes me more mad about Linux. The one thing that bothers me the most is actually, and and I do talk about it a lot, but it, it literally is getting under my skin at this point, that so many of these distros just completely ignore AMD and Intel and all of the work that they've done to put into these drivers and open source their stuff and they get completely ignored and we bend over backwards like we did for Microsoft, again for NVIDIA. We won't push Wayland right now because NVIDIA is not ready. We will we'll make it so that you can just check a box and get NVIDIA working. We'll do everything we can for NVIDIA, but the companies that are doing the right thing, well, whatever, we don't care about them. So it really annoys me and it cracks me up in a sad way that the person who gets it most of all is Valve. So Valve comes in and says, all right, well, if nobody's going to actually do this stuff and try to improve AMD and Intel and the open source stuff they're working on, we already did it once in 2016 to give them the boost. So we'll do it again. So now they just need you to go out there if you have AMD hardware and you download this new shader compiler and test it out. And I did. And I was getting um, on the Radeon 7 somewhere around 176 frames per second in dying light. So the frame per second boost was insane. Um, That's on the highest settings um, from this. So it nearly cuts the compile times in half and increases your frames per second to insanity levels. Um, But there are little bugs and things that can pop up depending on the game. But one of the other things I thought was really fascinating is that Arch was the distro that they released this driver for first. And you can basically go out there in the AUR and pick it up. If you are on Ubuntu, they they have in there that the PPA will come at a later date. This is the first time I've ever seen that happen and likely could be maybe just theory fallout from what happened earlier last week but i'm just happy somebody valve is actually realizing that hey maybe we should be working with the companies that do open source hardware yeah and also the i mean you should also acknowledge the fact that the the companies that don't do open source hardware are being challenged by the ones that do and therefore are forced to do anything better that you know previously before they were getting challenged they didn't have to care and they didn't care now that they do we, so even NVIDIA users have to thank AMD for making NVIDIA care. So there's that. Uh, but also, I think this is awesome that they're doing it. And the, what we talked about, we've we mentioned Valve multiple times recently. And it is mainly because Valve has done, the, you know, in, in the sense of like Linux gaming, 
we really have to thank Valve for being the 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 catalyst for Linux gaming because even uh, the Humble Bundle is great. GOG is great. I really love the fact that they're doing these things, and especially with the Humble Bundle charity system is amazing. Uh, but before really we only had before Valve came, we only had you know maybe a handful of games, maybe a couple dozen games at the best. And now that we have Valve, and that they did the work with Proton, which is also by itself worth talking about because Proton is an amazing uh, software development in conjunction with the Wine team and Valve. Uh, there's there's so much that Valve has done to improve the gaming on Linux plat- as a platform. It is such a great thing that I mean that they deserve to be talked about. And this is another one of those things that they're improving a fundamental piece that is definitely necessary. And hopefully the distros the distros will try to adopt at least this this package and you know even adopt the other things to to improve the the experience with AMD users because of all the companies to support, I think the the one that actually cares about the like for oh here's a great thing. We just talked about how open source is an important aspect to it and people are using it as marketing. AMD is not doing that. They are actually embracing the open source and we should be embracing them rather than all these other companies that are like like why did so why did so many com- so many different distros jump onto working on the Windows subsystem for Linux? Why do we care? Exactly. Yeah, why do we care if that works? Microsoft should be doing that, not us, but we should care if AMD has the best experience on Linux. And I'm I'm glad that Valve at least somebody recognize that who can put in the money and the resources to do it. But I, I, I wish that all the other companies would do. This isn't just an AMD issue. This is an Intel issue as well. Intel contributes a tremendous amount of code into the kernel. And, you know, the, a lot of times this type of stuff and the, the different hardware that's coming in, like Wacom tablets and other stuff, the thing is hurry up and wait. Sure, put it in our kernel. We're not going to really create, you know, any put any real effort into enabling it faster or maybe we'll get to it in the next release. Uh, but th- there's nothing really being done. But if it's NVIDIA, it's like, oh, my gosh, how can we possibly make it so much more easier uh, can we have a dancing NVIDIA icon on the screen that maybe, you know, screams out, click me and install me so that people can do it? I mean, and I don't care. I'm fine that we actually have that easy install for NVIDIA. It just frustrates me to no end that the two companies who are spending the most time open sourcing their drivers and software out there are being completely ignored by the distros out there who are not making it so that you can get those same drivers, the hardware enablement stack, for instance, from those kernels in a one-click install for AMD and Intel and the Wacom hardware that comes out there and all this stuff, they basically get completely ignored and nobody cares. And from a server standpoint, if you look at the partnerships that AMD has racked up, just from Microsoft alone, by the way, let alone Google Stadia and everything else, you better start thinking about getting AMD enabled into your distro pretty quickly or you're going to find yourself on the opposite side of this problem. It's just, but it just frustrates me because I think NVIDIA is embedded deeper, but why on the open source world are we just accepting that? Sure, maybe they come in and say, hey, we really want you to put our proprietary driver on your distro and we'll sit here in this office and code it for you. Meanwhile, they're holding back projects like Wayland, they are, they've kept their drivers completely proprietary. They donate almost no open source code in comparison to what AMD and Intel are doing. But yet there are, they're the ones we want to be embedded in. Kick them out. Put AMD in there. Let's move on. That's how I feel about it. You got me all riled up. <laughs> That's what we needed. That's what we wanted. 
as as Ryan has got riled up, we also got riled up earlier about a, another piece of hardware, and I think that this is one of those things that I'm I'm super excited about, and I I'm so jealous that Zeb got to try it out. But we have a lot of new information coming about the Pinebook Pro that came out recently, and the Zeb has actually got a chance to talk about. It. We'll discuss that in a second. Uh, there's they, they, stop showing it off. You're making me more jealous. <laughs> but uh, so I think that there's a lot of cool stuff that's coming, and the, the, one of the, the, the best things about it is that they're t- going to be taking pre-orders in July 25th. So just the end of this month, or you can start getting pre-orders. So they're almost ready to go. And uh, another thing that is uh, just fantastic that they're doing is they're making it possible to disable hardware inside of this the Pinebook Pro, very similar to how the Librem uh, Librem's laptops do, or the premium the Librem uh, 15 and stuff like that from Purism. They're going in to do switches. They're not doing a hardware switch there, but they're allowing you to disable the hardware from the switches that are being mapped to uh, function keys with uh, like the like the F1, F2, and F3. So you can be able to disable your Bluetooth and Wi-Fi module, disable the webcam and the microphones all through the like, disable the hardware. So that's an awesome feature that they're doing. They're also doing a really cool thing where they're having multiple operating systems by default as choices that you can do when you get you ship the, the device. So you can have different flavors of distros like in of Linux, of course, and uh, they haven't said how many different distros or what those would be, but there will be multiple different options there. They're also going to make you make it possible for you to get Chromium OS if you'd like, and even Android Nine, for some reason. And what's funny about their article, their blog post that they mentioned about this, they were saying that uh, they they know that Android Nine is not something that a lot of people are interested in. So we're just going to move on to the next thing. And they talk about all the other stuff that's coming, uh, and I think that's actually true. It's really cool that they have that as a function. I don't really care that they do, but I'm happy that they're doing it because it means that they're you know, making it possible for other people who want to have a laptop with Android to be able to do that with a, a solid piece of hardware. So that's really cool that they're doing it. And uh, I really like the fact that this is maybe not that big of an issue, but I think it's a really it's really cool that they're doing it. They put the effort into making a custom keycap key with the Pine64 logo on the, where the super key is. So like they, they are doing a lot of impressive work. And so now that I have this, the update about out about the, the July stuff that they've gotten, I'm super excited about all that stuff. Zeb, how's the experience been with the Pinebook Pro prototype? Yeah, uh, yeah. This is this is a prototype, and it's only one of five in the world. So we feel really privileged on uh, Destination Linux that that Pinebook have allowed us to have access to this machine. But one of the things that I just want to go back to, because I was super impressed when I was talking um, to Lucas, the uh, community manager earlier on this afternoon, the F1, F2 and F3 switches are, they're not going to be linked in any way, shape or form to the OS. So if you get hacked, a hacker will not be able to turn back on your Wi-Fi. They will not be able to turn back on your camera or your Bluetooth because they're going to be having a tiny little um, chip connected to the keyboard and the keyboard only that runs all of that information on disabling the other bits and pieces. Not sure how the technical side of it, but you can imagine yourself sitting in this 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 internet cafe and you thought, oh, let's just stop people from interacting with me. So I go, dum, dum, dum. And then some hacker comes along and goes, yeah, well, let's turn that back on that one. They're not going to be able to do that in any way, shape or form. So that for that me awesome. was, that was, that was just superb. But going back to the, the prototype that I've got, it was very interesting to get an email from, um, Lucas, 
we're only weeks away from them finalizing what's going to be happening with this latest Pinebook Pro. And yet there are so many things that I haven't got on here that are going to be coming out on the new machine. It's just incredible. But the day-to-day -day use of this thing, I deliberately thought, here we go. We've got this machine. It's, it's you know, being touted as a lightweight, portable machine that will do everything you wanted to do. And the minute he told me it had HD graphics, I thought, right, let's give this a real hard test. So I deliberately went out and picked four YouTube videos that were full HD and placed them all four on the screen and said, right, let it cope with that. God, blimey, it just sailed through it like there was no problems <laughs> whatsoever. Everything I've been, I've tried to throw at this thing. I mean, apart from streaming and playing games, which obviously you can't do and you wouldn't expect it to do. But all hardcore, I mean, I was even opening up documents in the background and trying to run HTOP while it was doing it. And anything I tried to throw at this little beast, it went, yeah, go on in. I'm just going to keep working. And I couldn't get it to fall over. It's amazing. The way that you're describing it, what I'm hearing, Zeb, is that this is really a computer that isn't for the tinkers. It's not for the people that just want a Raspberry Pi in a laptop form. This is the kind of computer that anybody can purchase and be introduced to Linux, or even if you maybe already have a primary computer, this is a great secondary laptop to pick up like Michael was using that you can keep in the bag and pull out for those times that you need to be at the airport and check your email because you're not, it's not a, it's not a compromised device. It's actually an ARM power. It's probably the first example that we've seen of a properly powered ARM laptop that is designed for day-to-day -day use, a production-grade laptop. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I know people rave about the Chromebook, but at the end of the day, all you can do on a Chromebook is what um, Chrome allow you to do within their OS. Yep. And it's all internet based. This can do that and so much more. It's an This is so important for Linux, in my opinion, because if you look at, for instance, my kids, when they started in school, we got, uh, it was around Black Friday, we got the school list of things that we needed to get for when the kids were going to start um, school. And so we go out for Black Friday shopping and there are all of these laptops lined up. There's, there's Windows laptops and all this stuff that are wrapped up at a Walmart, okay? And they're all wrapped up until midnight hits and then they cut the plastic off and everyone grabs them as fast as they can and people go chaotic and all of this stuff. But what was interesting to me is everyone was surrounding the Chromebooks. And I thought, why is everybody sitting here trying to grab the Chromebooks? And there was nobody sitting in line, but maybe three or four people. You could easily walk up for the Windows and other machines that were there. And then when we looked at our school list, it has Chromebook on there for our kids. That's the one that they got in there. Now, why do you think schools chose that? Well, number one, they advertised at least to say, hey, we have very secure virus-free operating system on this device. And number two, most importantly, it's cheap. It's much easier to tell a parent to go out there and grab this $199 or $300 Chromebook than it is to tell them to go get a Dell XPS for $700 on up, you know, for the parents to go get. So it offered those two things. Now you have the situation here where Linux is coming in with the Pinebook, extremely amazing price that they are suggesting that they're going to release this device for, true privacy built into this device, and the power of Linux that you can leverage on this so you could actually save things in a legit file system unlike Chrome uh, OS. 
um, is absolutely amazing. And I think you've seen, you know, the potential of Google even reacting to Linux because on Chrome OS, they had to throw a Linux sublayer kind of essentially in there as well uh, to try to utilize the power of Linux in there because they're so limited with Chrome OS. So this Pinebook, I think, is more important than we even uh, believe now uh, for Linux in the market because this is a fantastic solution to get into schools and uh, education systems and for digital divide issues, right? Companies and sponsors could grid a whole pile of these and send them off to areas that don't have traditionally access and do it uh, to machines and laptops and computers and do it for super cheap. Yeah, mm -hmm. actually the interesting thing about it is that we were talking about how, uh, I mentioned that I used it for traveling as a secondary laptop and, or as a device and since like I have the big, uh, big desktop that I normally use, but I wanted to have some kind of secondary laptop. And I have another laptop, but it's so bulky, I don't really like traveling with it. And I, I, brought the lap, I brought the bulky laptop and the Pinebook with me here to Ryan's, and I used the Pinebook 99% of the time. And, it was, and the only reason I didn't use it the other part is because the battery had died and I forgot to charge it. So I went and charged it, used the other one I didn't really want to use, brought back the Pinebook, and it's so much easier because it, it allows me to do everything I really needed to do and do all my prep for the show and stuff like that. And and, and also the battery is great because it's ARM-based. And the fact, the fact that that Pinebook is only $100 and this new one that's even that's got so much better specs and so much better features is also only uh, like just like basically like $200 and it's such a cheap price that it's it's fantastic that they I can't wait to play with this thing. And I, yeah, again, I'm really jealous that Zeb already got to, but, or at least the prototype. Uh, but th it's, it's awesome that they're like the, pro the Pine team is so open to, you know, it, it communicating with us. They don't mind that we, we're, we're testing a prototype because a lot of companies would be like, there's no way we'll let, we'll let you touch a prototype because then you'll say something about how it's, you know, it's a prototype and it's broken and how, you, how dare it give us whatever, then just give us a bad review or whatever. So most companies would never even consider the possibility of letting a prototype be touched by a podcast who has people who do reviews of hardware and do reviews of software and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. Pine64 was totally open to doing it and was like, yeah, we, we, we're we'd happy to check it out. And that is such an awesome experience to, to have a company that with that attitude bringing out a product that has potential to be uh, a game changer in many ways, not only just the price, but also like the, the usability of it. I mm -hmm. am so excited and I don't even have one yet and I'm already a fanboy. Mm -hmm. So, Well, again, I'll go back to the, the email that I got from uh, Lucas earlier on today. Um, and like you said, you, some people will be worried that we will be making negative reviews on that. But for me, this is a positive because they are obviously doing a lot of quality research themselves because even though they are only literally weeks away and from this product being you're able to order it, they gave a list of nine items that they intend to fix that they have found themselves at fault with this laptop. And for me, it's not something that me as a general user, I don't think, would have found or I would have even considered. Now, apparently, what they're going to be doing is one of the one of the problems, allegedly, with these with these smaller laptops is when you're in your bag and you've closed them, they're very easy to open up again. Yeah. So what they're going to be doing is they're going to be putting some magnets on the inside of the bevel by the screen so that when it closes 
it physically closes. And again, Lucas warned me about it's going to get hot on this part of the, the board because they hadn't finished the design of their heat sinks that's going to go inside of all the gubbins. Even with it running full pelt trying to cope with four, I didn't think it was getting hot. And yet this thing's got a more powerful processor in it than the Pi 4. And that thing's like a coal fire. So I know they fixed it, but <laughs> they, 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 for me, they are nitpicking on problems. So trust me, the product you get when this comes out, in my opinion, just as a general user, will be quality even at $199. And look, no, they didn't sponsor us for anyone. It's like, oh, I better they didn't sponsor us. No. <laughs> Just to make that clear, we literally love this. You know, you know, you know what, though? Do you know how the way that works, though, Ryan? The, honestly, the truth is we wouldn't take a – if they had sponsored us, we wouldn't take a sponsor that we didn't believe in anyway, right? Like, exactly. Whereas it relates to DigitalOcean, like, yes, they do sponsor this episode, but we like their product long before we ever had the opportunity to – to have them sponsor us. And so uh, the, the reason I say that is just to point out that, uh, you know, in the coming weeks, if, or coming months, if we ever had got to a point where digital, where Pine Book was sponsoring us, it wouldn't change our, our, our opinion or our review of them. Absolutely sure. not. And, and again, that was one of the things that I, I liked about it. He said, because, okay, do you do you have a look at it and tell people, but please be honest, tell them what you think is bad about it. Tell them what you think is good about it. But for me as a general user, and I've only used it for a couple of hours before the show, I haven't yet been able to find anything that's bad. But trust me, I will be putting this thing through its paces so that when I give it back to Lucas on Monday, I will let him know exactly how it performed. And if we've got time in the next show, I'll give you guys an update and I'll let you know whether or not I found anything of of concern. Absolutely love it. And thanks again to the Pine team for letting us have a demo, letting us have Zeb have a demo. What is this thing with you getting all these cool laptops? I'm the hardware guy. You got the System 76. You got the Pine. This is not fair. They not trust fair. They trust Uncle Zeb to do it right. <laughs> <laughs> all right. On to the tip and trick of the week. So Vim Editor. So Vim Editor can be used for more than just a text editor. I thought this was something pretty cool. Maybe a lot of you already know it, but it's just worth mentioning. You can also use Vim to, for instance, list out contents of compressed archive files. So you download a big archive file and you want to know what's inside of it. Uh, You can do that very easily by doing something like Vim and then the file name like textfile.tar. And if you do that, it will show you within the editor all of the contents of that file. So just a little tip and trick of the week of something you can do extra with Vim. It's more than just a simple text editor out there. So a big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We love our patrons and, no, I'm going to say it right, our coffee supporters as well. So we just want to give a special shout out. For all of your support, we do a live show for our patrons. So come join us if you want to be a part of the show. And you can do so for just $1. Seriously, that's darn near free. That's right. We want you to join us on coffee. Actually pronounced correctly, so we're so excited about that. Uh, It's it's buy us a cup of coffee. It makes perfect sense. We're on coffee, and you can support the show that way. Coffee offers a nice monthly option that will allow you to have the same perks as Patreon. There'll be a link in the show notes and on the website. So join coffee today. The perks include things like live access to the unedited versions of the live shows, as well as our most sincere 
gratitude. So please check us out. That's the way we prefer you support us if you're willing to. And irregardless, you love Kofi. I do. I'm a big coffee fan. Yes, I really do. I like, I like coffee. I like drinking. I like. I have. I have a Keurig coffee maker. I go out to my favorite coffee <laughs> store to pick up coffee. Anytime I'm in a restaurant, I make sure to order coffee. Coffee is great. <laughs> Thanks, man. And I know we get to this part of the show, and people think, "Oh, here they go. They're going to go on about patrons. They're going to go on about coffee. They're going to go on about emails." But it really is important for you guys and girls out there listening to our podcast to keep that information coming back to us. Give us feedback about the show. Let us know what you think we're doing right. Let us know what you think we're doing wrong. Otherwise, we're just going to keep producing the content that we produce. So send your emails and and information through to comments at destinationlinux.org. If you're not in the mood to write an email, there are plenty of other ways that you can contact us and let us know what's going on. Telegram, Discord, Twitter, Mastodon, and a whole list of other stuff that Michael's put together that I didn't even know existed at destinationlinux.org forward slash contact. That's right. And the, the fun doesn't stop here. We actually have a lot of our, con- our, own, our own channels. You can check out our content by, for example, you can go to uh, youtube.com slash dosgeek to find out Ryan's content where he fills your brains on hardware, software, and all things Linux. You can check out Zeb as he's uh, driving around at crazy speeds, moving around side caravans that get in his way on his streams at youtube.com slash Boss. You can check out my content where I do a in-depth, in-depth weekly Linux GNU's web, uh, podcast they're called This Week in Linux and other Linux-related content by going to touchdigital.com slash thisweekinlinux. And Noah can be found at the Ask Noah show, where he, can, he talks about he does a weekly talk radio show at 6 p.m. Central on Tuesdays. You can join him and ask, uh, ask questions about tech, Linux, what his favorite cup of coffee is, all kinds of things you can check out. And uh, also be sure to like that smash button and share the show on social media. Everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination. Thanks, everyone. All right, you got to mute though. I'll just, I'll take all of Noah's stuff. Okay, I just, I, I'm hearing an echo. Cause yeah. I just need to not talk. Yeah, I what happened is it went, anyways, all right, ready? <laughs> so everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the Kofi patron. Thanks everyone. What is that still there? <laughs>